But Father, all the time we're conscious of the fact that we are aiming for that glorious day when you are going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. When your victory will be so complete that all the universe will see it. And Father, I just thank you that we, sitting in this room tonight, are going to see it with our own eyes. Father, I pray that you will take these words of mine and make them life to us, Lord. Father, I just ask that these things should not just be um, fanciful ideas, but Father, that they should come over with reality to us, that we might really see that these things are really going to come to pass, and that, Father, we should be even more diligent in our lives to serve you. Oh, Father, thank you for this time where we can gather round your word. And please just bless it, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Last time we studied the subject of the rapture of the church. And so tonight we are ready to begin talking about the tribulation. The period I call the tribulation is perhaps the most devastating period of the earth's history. There is no time like it. There has never been a time like it. It is so horrific in its nature. And because it is such a vast subject, I want tonight to spell out the philosophy that is going to be prevalent on the earth during the tribulation so that we might understand some of the things that we're going to read in the book of, of the Revelation. You see, it's no good when you come to a subject like this to just start talking and filling in the details. You've got to see what is the underlying stream of history that is heading towards the tribulation. The period is devastating. The period is climactic. The period is horrific in all of its details. The period is, is one of tremendous destruction. And unless we understand what has led up to it, then we cannot understand what it is and why God is allowing it as a period of the earth's history. And so tonight, I want to review something that we covered a few Bible studies ago. You will remember that I began this particular course with a Bible study called the Tower of Babel. And we started looking uh, at the sinfulness of man and at man's rebellion. Now I want to take us back to that evening where we studied what went on at Babylon. Because it is in that era of human history that we see the seeds being sown for what comes into fruition in the tribulation. And I want to trace it through, through from Babylon right the way through to the tribulation so that we can really understand what we are dealing with. Now, in that tape, I, I mentioned the period of time which is covered in Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 11. And do you remember we saw that in those 11 fairly short chapters, 2,000 years of human history is dealt with. Once the creation has been talked about, once the fall of man has been talked about, we then launch into chapters which show us nothing but man's utter failure, extreme sinfulness of man, and extreme godlessness of man. The way that man constantly rebels. The way that man is always producing sin. That though he tries to do right, he's always failing. It begins just after the fall with that appalling incident in which Cain rises up and he slays Abel. Then you see all the descendants of Cain, not only going in the way of Cain, but more than that, being proud to walk in the way of Cain, being proud that they're godless, being proud that they're sinful. And we have the boast of Lamech, if you remember. You know, well, if God 
said he'd avenge Cain, he'll even more avenge me. You know, and he starts boasting in that type of way. And in just a few short chapters of Genesis, we reach the time where, as far as human history is concerned, sin is dominating the whole scene. In fact, by Genesis in chapter 6, you reach the place where the principal uh, force on the earth is demonism. We have the whole of the earth's population polluted with demons. And we see that after only 16 centuries, that's 1,600 years of human history, with the four gathering momentum all the time, we have only eight true believers out of a population of millions left on the earth. And in Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the appalling scene of sinfulness and godlessness, and he, he says to, in his heart, I have got to judge what I see before me. My righteousness is offended, my justice is offended, and I've got to move. And you remember what happened? He sent a universal flood. He had to do it to preserve what was left of humanity and to preserve what was left of his plan. And he sent a flood of worldwide proportions and the slaughter was absolutely enormous. Millions of insects, millions of animals, millions and millions of plants and millions of people totally destroyed with only their fossil remains left uh, for us to see the type of carnage that went on. All right, when the flood was over, eight people, all believers, still existed. And they went down, they started multiplying on the face of the earth. And you know what happened? Within a few years of their multiplication, the sinfulness starts moving again. The, the fall starts gathering momentum. And within a few generations, once again, God is being challenged and man is rebelling against God. And we saw a character whose name was Nimrod who came along and he was the prime mover in this new rebellion against God. And by the way, the rebellion was just as fast as the one that had occurred before the flood. And God said to the people, go and multiply, go and be fruitful, but go and spread right round the earth. And Nimrod and the bunch of people around him, they said, God, we refuse to do what you tell us to do. And instead, then of spreading right round the earth, they built the very first city. The city that God actually makes into a place of Babel, or Babel as we call it, and the place which in history is called Babylon. And Nimrod establishes the city of Babylon, and he establishes a vast community within the city walls. His aim all the time is that God is not going to be allowed to have a hand in human history. He wants to establish his own borders so that God doesn't have to protect him. He wants to create a system in which there can be prosperity and blessing without God having any say in it. And above everything else, he finally wants to take God out of the arena of human history. And you remember that the height of the sinfulness comes when they decide to build a tower. Now up to that time, all the buildings have been made of bricks. They simply cut a, a, a rectangle, as it were, of uh, clay or mud out of the land. They left it in the sun, and the sun would bake it dry. Then they would take these bricks, and they would put mortar between them, and gradually build the walls. But the description given in Genesis 11 is very interesting. For when they start building the Tower of Babel, they don't use ordinary sun-baked bricks, and they don't use ordinary mortar. They, it says clearly in, in Genesis 11, check it for yourselves after this study, it says that they used bricks which were fired. 
That is, they built a kiln and they put these bricks in. And if you fire a brick, what it happens? It becomes hard and it becomes extra resistant. Above everything else, it becomes waterproof. And then it says when they started to build, they didn't just build using these bricks and using ordinary mortar. No, they used bitumen, a waterproof type of mortar between the bricks. And that gives us a clue as to the purpose of the tower. And by the way, its purpose is clearly stated by the historian Josephus. It was built so that if man, sorry, that if God decided that he was going to judge man and send another flood to destroy him, that man quite simply could walk up to the top of the tower and be above the floodwater. That was the purpose of the Tower of Babel. It had at its very core rebellion against God. That's what it was all about. All right, God counterattacked. Now, how did God counterattack? He counterattacked absolutely beautifully. He simply uh, saw all the workers down there. He saw all the people speaking the same language. He saw all the people with the same culture. And uh, he said, right, I'm going to mess this up. And all of a sudden, he created, we don't know how many, probably about 70 different linguistic groups among those people. And all of a sudden they found they couldn't communicate with their neighbor. All of a sudden they found that the thinking was different, the culture was different. Why, they didn't like the people next to them anymore. And all of a sudden, the dispersion occurred. God didn't have to do it, they just couldn't bear living with one another, and they did it, right? In other words, they wouldn't bow the knee to God, so God, God got them to bow the knee to his word. And off they went and scattered. Now some people think that that was God's answer to the rebellion of Nimrod. In fact, it was not God's answer to the rebellion of Nimrod. All God did was to delay the outcome of Nimrod's rebellion. You see, before the flood, man's sinfulness had reached its maximum uh, development. In other words, the point where God had to come and destroy in only 1,600 years. After the flood, it was heading the same way. But God didn't want it to head the same way. He wanted it delayed. He didn't just want 16 centuries to go past and then he'd have to send the judgment of fire. He wanted more centuries than that to go past. And here was God's very clever counterattack. But the point I want to make today, and this is crucial to our understanding of the tribulation, is that that rebellion from the Tower of Babel had still been going on in human history. It has been gathering speed ever since the Tower of Babel was established, but has been delayed. You know, its development, its fermentation time has taken much longer than it did before the flood. And, in fact, we stand today and still the rebellion that began in Nimrod's day hasn't yet come to its fullest extent. And therefore, God at the moment still hasn't had to judge the a line of rebellion that has come from Nimrod. I think the best picture I can give to describe this is a geographical one, of course, and it is of this. I imagine the iniquity and the rebellion which began at Babel as a little trickle of water. And beginning with Babel, I see this little rill of water beginning to flow into human history. And then as you look down human history, you see this a sort of stream of iniquity gradually developing and gradually enlarging. A rill turns into a brook. The brook then turns into a stream. The stream then turns into a small river. 
And so the river has been getting larger and larger and larger as time has gone on. And today, the river is quite large. What happens in the tribulation is this, that the river finally overflows its banks. Finally, the sinfulness which was sown at the Tower of Babel becomes so strong in its growth, so massive in its fruitfulness, that like a tidal wave, this river of iniquity just hits the earth and hits every person on the earth. As this river has gone along sometimes, um, it's been clear. We've been able to look at the river and say, yes, there is the river of iniquity. But sometimes it's ducked beneath, beneath the surface, you know? Sometimes it seems to be out of sight. You can hear the noise of it. Occasionally it comes up to the surface, but it soon ducks under again. And as you look down human history, you see the different phases that this river of iniquity has gone through. The tribulation sees it at its biggest extent ever. All right, now that's what we're dealing with then. We are dealing with a river of sinfulness which has been developing since the Tower of Babel. All right, there's the river. What I want to do is to have a look at some things concerning this river. Because obviously when the river breaks through onto the earth in the tribulation, it is going to have exactly the same characteristics that it had at the Tower of Babel and that it always had down history. And so I want to give four things that make up its essential nature. And by the way, when I do this, you will soon see that the river is flowing right the way underneath the whole of our culture. There is a nature that this river has, which for those of us who study the Word of God, enables us to identify the river of Babylon that has been flowing from the Tower of Babel. Let me give you these four points and... And this will help us in our thinking. The first thing in its essential character or nature is this. It is fully rebellious. Its very nature is one of rebellion. And because of that, it is specifically rebellious as far as God is concerned. And so we can say it's rebellious, it's anti-God, and since Jesus has been anti-Christ, it rebels against anything that God does or anything that God says or that anything that, uh, against anything that God provides. That's the first thing. Totally rebellious. Number two, this river of Babylon is independent of God. It seeks total independence. It doesn't want the earth to be tied up with God. It doesn't want humanity to be tied up with God. It doesn't want organizations to be tied up with God. It wants God completely out of the picture. By the way, can you see uh, two things in our society that stem from this? I would name two things immediately. There are many others. The first is evolution. What does evolution do? Evolution comes along and it says, oh, the whole of the universe is a closed machine. And this universe is capable of developing itself, you know. It's evolution that dictates the course of history and what happens. And it claims total power. Evolution can do anything. And you'll find that uh, programs that deal with uh, nature, they'll always have evolution involved with it. Do you know how they express it? They say, well, what nature did was this. 
nature decided that the butterfly ought to go through its lifestyle in this particular way. As soon as you see the word nature used, you're dealing with the principle of Babylon. All they're trying to do is to say that God isn't the creator, that the creation itself is in charge of its own development. You see? How amazing. And yet, we swallow it, you know? And quite staggering how we listen to programs and we take it all in. Another one I would mention, uh, as far as independence of God is concerned, is communism. There is no person who understands the Bible who can accept the principles of communism. Communism simply says that man is going to create the perfect society on the earth. Man now is quite capable of doing it, thank you very much. Total independence of God. You don't need God, you see. That is the river of Babylon that underlies the things in our society. All right, so that's number two, the independence, as far as God is concerned. Number three, this river of Babylon seeks to glorify man. Man is everything. Man's system is everything. Man is going to have the preeminence. There it is. And the fourth thing, which is a very subtle thing, is this river of Babylon seeks world government on the earth. That's what it's after. And uh, the reason, quite simply, is this, that the earth today is governed from heaven. It is God who dictates what happens as far as the earth is concerned. God sets up kingdoms, God removes kingdoms. And this river of iniquity rebels against that. It doesn't want it. And so its answer is no. We're not going to be governed from, from heaven. We're going to be governed from the earth. And all the time, part of this river is pushing for world government. They want to see all the nations coming together, all speaking the same language, all in total agreement. In other words, to undo everything that God did at the Tower of Babel. It's for that reason, by the way, that some Bible scholars would actually call the United Nations the Second Tower of Babel. You know, that's what they would actually say it's all about. An attempt to establish man's uh, uh, system, as far as the earth is concerned. And may I say, having been round the United Nations building in New York, I've never seen a building that gives glory to man as quite that building does. Absolutely appalling. God not mentioned anywhere. There's one misquotation from the Bible. Right? One misquotation. It doesn't mention that God does anything. It says that men shall actually take their weapons and beat them until they're made into agricultural implements. And you know the verse that I mean. You know, that's what it says. Not God. Not at all. It ignores the one that says the opposite as well, by the way. And that's it. Man's going to do all of this. And you walk in the United Nations building, everything is to the glory of man. What is it? It's simply that at that particular point, the river of iniquity has surfaced. And then it ducks under again. We Christians, you know, have been very stupid over many, many years as far as worldliness is concerned. Most of us think of worldliness in terms of overt sin, you know, in terms of the drug scene, in terms of smoking, and things like this. And that, that's right, of course. But worldliness is much deeper than that. Worldliness is thinking like Babylon thinks. That's what it is. And sometimes, you know, I've seen Christian children, that is, children brought up in in Christian homes, but they don't smoke. They don't drink. But when you question them, they're absolutely full of this worldly thinking. You know, they watch the television. They're not a bit critical of what carries on on the television. They just suck it all in. And what's on the radio? Suck it all in. And all the films, they suck it all in. And all the parents, you know, say, oh, well, at least he doesn't smoke. At least he doesn't drink. 
And he's got the river of Babylon absolutely flowing through his, his whole mentality. And it's time, you know, that we learnt in ourselves that we have to start criticizing the things we read, criticizing the things we see, and see what is the underlying push. I, one point I'd like to make is this. Have you ever seen these comedy programs on television or on the radio in which you've always got a big nagging wife and a wheedling little husband, you know? And there she is, the wife, she's the capable one, you know, and she's able to do anything and he's a little weed of a fellow. And we laugh at these programs and switch them off and say, isn't that nice? But what we've got to realize is, what's the push behind that, that program? You see, in everything that goes out over the media, it's either Babylon flowing or it's God's viewpoint flowing. And what is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's trying to destroy marriage and the family. And all the children sit there, they're laughing away. All these Christian children, wonderful, you know, George and Mildred's on or whatever it is. And there it is, you know, really funny. Nothing wrong with having a good laugh, as long as you point out to them what is the push behind that particular program. What about David Attenborough's program, Life on Earth? Oh, beautiful program, all those lovely creatures. I'll tell you, to people who are really trained in the Word of God, it was wonderful. I didn't see any of them, but I heard from others. It was wonderful to see God's creation around. Absolutely thrilling to see all these things. But what about the commentary? God mentioned? Not on, no, not at all. Absolutely not. And what a lovely man David Attenborough is, isn't he? Oh, sure. Lovely. Everyone thinks, oh, what a lovely man. I'll tell you this, and this might offend some people, but I'm still going to say it. I reckon that David Attenborough might, as far as God is concerned, be deemed one of the most sinful people that has lived on the face of this earth. And the reason that I say that, and I say it with great fear in my heart, is this. He has seen more of God's wonderful handiwork and creation than any man alive. And he still refuses to see the creatorhood of God in it all. I fear greatly for the man. And we could go on. Bamba Gascoigne and the Christians and all the other things. These programs have got to be criticized by us because this is the spirit of worldliness which comes from Babylon. Do you see, therefore, when our newspaper comes through the door, part of the river of Babylon has just flowed into our house. And what we have to do when we read the newspaper is to, to criticize it, to see what is the push behind it. For parents, we've got to make sure that our children are brought up to understand what the real issues are all about. The students at colleges, you've got to understand what's the push behind these lectures. You know, what is it that the lecturer really is driving at? And probably you'll find that above everything, he wants to demote God. You know, he wants to make God into mythology, something that only a poor, pathetic individuals need, you know, instead of being the one who made the universe and who is the controller of the universe. You see, the, this is the river that's flowing through our society. And how many Christians realize that it's there? It's terrible. This was the river that began at Babel and has gone on even to the present day. All right. The Bible traces the history of this river. And let me tell you some of the characteristics now of this river that flows. Because there are, well, I'm going to give four characteristics. These are, represent the essential nature. Let's call the characteristics A, B, C, and D. D is going to surprise you quite a lot. But let's do, do them right the way through. And this is what the Bible declares about Babylon and this river of iniquity that flows. A, it's typified by great political 
political and military power. Wherever the river of Babylon surfaces, it's always accompanied with fantastic power in the political scene and in the military scene. It always is. And so do you see, when the river surfaces in the tribulation, what do we expect in the tribulation? We expect big armies and we expect huge, powerful politicians. That's exactly what we get. That's the first. The Bible describes it like this. It talks about um, Babylon as the one that made the nations to tremble. The one that ruled the earth, it says. It called Babylon the oppressor. These are the terms that locate for us the characteristics of Babylon. That's the first. Great political and military power. Uh, B, the second characteristic is this. Uh, much wealth and prosperity. There's much trading. You know, many merchants are associated with it. And whenever the river surfaces, that's exactly what you find. Tremendous wealth, tremendous prosperity breaking out. Why? Simply because man is trying to become prosperous without God's blessing. He wants to establish a system whereby he can just sit back and say, well, I can be as ungodly as I want to be, and still I'm going to be blessed. That's what it's all about, you see? So, A, great political and military power. B, much wealth as far as prosperity and trading is concerned. The third characteristic is this. It glorifies human wisdom. Right? So that man's ideas become absolutely the center of everything. You know, and what philosophers think, what psychologists think, become the absolutely essential thing. Those of you as students, you've come across this. I certainly have come across it in my talks where you explain to the people who are in your class in university that you're a Bible-believing Christian. And all of a sudden, they don't quite laugh. They're too polite. But they take on a sort of pitying look, a supercilious look, as if to say, oh, you poor chap, you know? And they, they look as if to say, well, of course, you know, I've progressed through that now. I really understand everything. I've read, you know, all the philosophers, the Kants and everything else. And they look upon you as if you're a poor, mediocre-brained idiot. That's it. What is it? I'll tell you what you're dealing with. Not just an individual who's conceited or proud. You're dealing with someone who's been totally inculcated with Babylon. That's all you're dealing with. All right, there's three. The fourth is very surprising. Number four. The fourth characteristic of Babylon is this. It has a blasphemous religious system associated with it. A blasphemous religious system. Now, that's absolutely staggering. And we've got to ask ourselves, why is it that when Satan devised this thing that we call Babylon, why did he include a blasphemous religious system in its character? The answer is very easy for those of us who are Bible scholars, and it's this, that when man fell... He had a spiritual void left inside of him. There is a hole in man which actually nothing but God can fill. And so Satan knew that if he left that hole completely unfilled, soon men would realize, well, materialism hasn't worked, and wisdom and philosophy hasn't worked. I need something else. And so to deceive them, Satan said, well, I'll provide what you need. And he provided a, a counterfeit religious system. 
He did it so cleverly, too. And it wasn't through Nimrod that this came, but funnily enough, this religious system came through Nimrod's wife. So let's just have a look in detail at this religious system. <clears throat> Nimrod's wife is a woman called Semiramis. S-E-M-I-R-A-M-I-S. Semiramis. And she was the one who was going to be used to begin the religious system, which Satan, by the way, has prospered ever since it began at the Tower of Babel. Semiramis found one day that she was pregnant. And so she claimed that her pregnancy wasn't from a human father, but was from the heavens. She said that she had conceived mystically and mysteriously from heaven. And that the child, therefore, that was in her womb was directly from heaven. After the normal gestation period, she brought forth a son, and she gave the son uh, the name by which he's known even in the Bible, the name of Tammuz. T-A-M-M-U-Z. Tammuz. Does it ring a bell, by the way, this story? Can you see what this is a counterfeit of? It gets even worse. Tammuz uh, started growing, started developing, and the story then is told that at a certain age he went out into the forest and a wild animal came out and killed him. And guess what? He was raised from the dead. Tammuz was raised from the dead. And beginning at Babel, this religious system, having a woman who claimed that she had a more or less divine child, who then died and was raised from the dead, was established as far as the earth is concerned. And do you know this? Most of the heathenistic religions stem from this religion that was established at uh, Babel. The details vary about it. For example, uh, soon Tammuz here uh, was called by other names. One of the names he had was the name Baal. The story of Baal is simply uh, a development of this story, which came from Babylon, you know? All of the religions, like Diana of the Ephesians, they all stem from exactly this course. And many of the heathenistic religions around the earth today all come from this false religious system um, that was established at Babel. Let me show you a passage in the Bible that actually talks about this. Turn to Ezekiel and chapter 8. Ezekiel and chapter 8. This is written about 2,500 years ago. <clears throat> and by the way, the story had changed a bit. Now, instead of Tammuz being killed by a wild animal and being raised from the dead, now what had happened was that the earth during June and July had become so dried up that he died of hunger. And so in June and July, the people who worshipped Tammuz used to cry because he was dying of hunger. That was part of their religion. Let's read from verse 7 of Ezekiel 8. And here God is explaining to Ezekiel why he is going to judge the earth and to judge uh, Judah specifically. And verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall, and when I digged in the wall, behold a door. And he said to me, Go in, 
And behold, the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients. These are the leaders of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Yah Azaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. That's idolatry. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. And he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And here they are, they are Jewish women, they apparently serve Jehovah, and in secret they are worshipping this Babylonian religion, and they are weeping because Tammuz has just died in the months of June and July, and they're expecting then him to be raised from the dead. That's evilness. All right, it wasn't just Tammuz either. Semiramis was also worshipped. And um, let's see where she's mentioned in the Bible. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7 and verse 18. Jeremiah 7 and verse 18. And here it is. Seest thou not, Jeremiah 7, verse 17, I beg your pardon, 17 and 18. Seest thou not what they do in the streets of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. The women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. And who is that? It's Semiramis. This is the mother of Baal and the mother of Tammuz. And they're worshipping this woman. It's all the Babylonian system of religion. It's an utter blasphemy about Mary and Jesus, about the virgin birth. It's a blasphemous tale which mimics that story. And it's blasphemy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There it is. And this system was designed so that men might have their religious, the religious side of their character totally satisfied and yet not get through to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, this is the river that has been flowing. Now, up to the time of Jesus, the river was fairly clear. In fact, all of the major uh, empires that existed before the time of Jesus, they all represent this river of iniquity that is flowing. Egypt began it, you know, and Egypt had a system which was entirely uh, this system uh, that tried to lead them away from the living God. After Egypt went, you then had Assyria coming along, and Assyria was a bit worse in this realm than Egypt was. After Assyria, you then got the Babylonian Empire. After the Babylonian Empire, you had the Persian. After the Persian, you had the Greeks. And after the Greeks, you had the Roman Empire. And this was the river of Babylon flowing widely and flowing in a, with tremendous force and for all to see. Right? It, it goes right through human history. And then in Jesus' day, I suppose we see Babylon 
in its most fully developed form, well, certainly more fully developed than we see it today. Have a look at the Roman Empire, right? In the days of Jesus, the Roman Empire was peaceful. It was prosperous, had tremendous wealth. It had centralized government, right? It had great prospects, huge military power, vast political power. These are all the characteristics that we're looking for. It was also idolatrous, appallingly idolatrous. And just about the time that Jesus was born, they had just started calling the emperors gods. They, made, they took these ordinary men and they said, and by the way, we're going to add you to the list of gods that we've got. What do you think about that? You know? And some of the emperors didn't think much of it. And some of the emperors said, now please, don't start treating me like a god. I'm an ordinary man. But they started worshipping these particular emperors. But some of the emperors loved it very much. And eventually, being called a god sent them absolutely mad, like Caligula and Nero. They went completely off their heads. You know? But can you see, it's got all the hallmarks of this Babylonian river of iniquity that is flowing. And if it had been left at that, I'll tell you this, God's judgment would have hit just a few hundred years after the time of Jesus. If that had been it, it was almost reaching its maximum fruitfulness, and God's judgment would have come at any time. But something happened. Something which was so devastating that the river of Babylon had to go underground. It had to start disappearing and had to start flowing, influencing the course of history, but not obviously so. Mm. In fact, only obvious for those of us in the know. In other words, those of us who study the word of truth. I'll tell you what that thing is in just a moment, right? It happened in Jesus' day, this thing. What's the tribulation? I'll tell you what happens at the tribulation. Whatever it was that caused the river of iniquity to go underground is suddenly removed. And at the beginning of the tribulation, this river of iniquity, which even now is bigger than it was in the days of Rome, suddenly is released. The thing that's been holding it down is suddenly taken away. And I'll tell you this, it hits the earth like a tidal wave. There is fantastic power released with it. Power of evil. Power of, which comes directly from Satan. And it hits the earth with absolutely vibrant force. Absolutely amazing. Uh, as it comes. Alright, what is this thing then that caused, caused this river to start flowing underground? And what is it then that is removed so that this, this river can again hit the earth at the beginning of the tribulation? The Bible tells us exactly what it is. So let's turn to the passage that deals with it. We were in this passage last, last time in the book of 2 Thessalonians. In the book of 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. Let's see it. Here's the river flowing along. Here is the time of Jesus. And the river has then to go underground, just appearing at certain times like this, but generally staying underground. And then something happens at this point here which causes the whole river to really start flowing again. Alright? By the way, this is why in the book of Revelation this river is called Mystery Babylon. Have you heard of the term Mystery Babylon? Fascinating. A mystery, you remember, is something which has been hidden and which is suddenly revealed. And in the book of Revelation it's called Mystery Babylon because for 2,000 years it's been hidden. 
and suddenly it breaks forth. Eventually, we're going to get on to Revelation 17 and 18, not tonight, but in future talks. And you know, it's marvellous. There's an ironic twist right at the end of the history of Babylon, which is fascinating. It really is. But that's a preview of coming attractions. Let's see what it is, and let's deal with this point here, just before the tribulation begins, when something occurs which releases this river of iniquity. I think we'll begin with verse 1. Do you remember the Thessalonians uh, had received certain letters and things saying that they were in the day of, of the Lord? In other words, in the time when God's judgment was being poured on the earth, in the period that we call the tribulation. So Paul writes them, he says, now look, you people, I was Bible teaching with you for three weeks, and you still haven't got hold of these things. You know, he says, you idiots. Let's read what it says. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. Do you remember we corrected that? It's not the day of Christ. It's the day of the Lord, the tribulation specifically. Verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day of God's judgment, that day of tribulation, shall not come unless there are two things first. It says in the King James, first a falling away. And we saw that that was the word departure and was a reference to the rapture of the church. In other words, it can't come till the church has been removed. In other words, you Thessalonians, if you're still here, of course you're not in the tribulation. That's the first thing. But there's the second thing. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The man of sin there refers to the central character of the tribulation. He is the dictator of the tribulation. He is called the man of sin because he physically represents all the worst that is in Babylon. We'll be studying this man of sin or this son of perdition uh, when I come on to the characters of the tribulation, we're going through all the central characters who will be around in the tribulation. We'll be dealing with his character, who he is, where he rules from, where the central government he establishes actually is, is on the earth. And you'll be surprised, many of you, where it's going to be established. No, it's not in Swansea. You're absolutely <laughs> wrong. Right, but we'll be discovering all about that. All right, but there it is. And it says that he has not yet been revealed and therefore... If he's not revealed, it can't have come. Even today, we do not know who this man is. Right? Some of us are looking out, but still, we do not know. If you ever know, do let me know, and I'll uh, see if I think you're right. When he comes, everyone's going to know him anyway. And then it talks about this man. Look what he says, and it's, it's Babylon, all right, who opposes. What's that? He rebels against God. He opposes God. And doesn't just oppose him by saying, God, you're wrong. Look what he does. And exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In other words, when this man comes along, he is going to be viewed by the population of the earth as God himself, and he will be revered as God. Now, to our thinking, that's impossible. We look around the earth today and we say that's absolutely impossible. I cannot see politicians of our day really believing that this man is God. 
You'll understand how they will in just a moment. To the church that um, Paul was writing to, they could easily accept it. Why? Because they'd just seen Caligula doing the same. Caligula called Lord by everyone. He was the only person you were allowed to name as Lord. And that's why the Christians rebelled and said, oh no, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who is Lord. And they all worshipped the Lord, while most of the Roman Empire was worshipping Caligula. And Caligula, you know, the man who had garden parties lit by burning Christians, he used to crucify them, cover them in wax, and set fire to them. They used to last all night. They used to have these vast parties in his garden. There he was, absolutely acting as if he's God. And you know, every temple in the empire had a statue of Nero, sorry, of Caligula in place. And Caligula was put up and all the people would worship Caligula as a god. And he even tried desperately in the temple at Jerusalem to get his statue put up. So that, you see, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they understood all about this. We are the ones with the problem. And they said, oh yes, we know exactly the type of man that this chap is going to be. You see, that's it. All right, there he is, and he says he's going to be revealed, but he hasn't been revealed yet, you Thessalonians, and for a reason. Now Paul goes on. Verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Verse 6 and 7, Then tell us why this man of sin has not yet been revealed. Look what it says. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. It's very complicated in the King James. And verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity. In other words, this hidden river of iniquity worketh already, or doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, isn't that complicated? So, let's go over those two verses. In verse 6, you have a word, which is the word withhold. The word withhold means to hold something back. And funnily enough, in, in verse 7, you have exactly the same word used in the Greek. Except in verse 7, weren't these translators helpful? They translated it a different way. And the word let, or letteth, is exactly the same word, and it means to withhold. So it says, you know who withholds withholds at this time, and listen, he says, he will withhold too until he be taken out of the way. To show you that, I've actually got an NIV version uh, with me, the dear NIV, and I'm just going to read you the translation given in the NIV because it's so simple and so clear. Let me just read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, and I'll begin verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, says Paul, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And this tells us that there is a force which is holding back the full development and the full fruition of Babylon. The question is, what is this force, or who is he? Because, you see, in verse 7, he is called by the pronoun he, until he be taken out of the way. So we're dealing with a person here. Now, who is it that 
cause the river to go underground here, and who here is going to allow the river to flow forth? Does the Bible tell us who it is? The answer is yes. By the way, 400 years after this passage was written, St. Augustine, who you remember had started allegorizing the Bible, and this passage didn't fit into his theology, he comes to this section and he says, no, we don't know who this is. No, definitely not. Simply because it didn't fit in with his theology. Oh dear, oh dear. Even the Thessalonians knew who it was. Who is it that restrains and withholds? Well, here is a case in point where the Bible is its own interpreter. So we have to look in the Bible to see whether there are any passages that show us um, someone withholding evil. And the answer is, yes, we do find them. Do you remember in the book of Job, when Satan wanted to attack Job? Satan goes along to God and he says, Oh, God, uh, this chap Job that you're so proud of, he only serves you because you've blessed him so much. If you didn't bless him, you know, he wouldn't serve you. And Satan says, you just let me at him. And you'll really see what he's made of. And you see, Satan does not have a free hand. God restricts his movement. And God says, first of all, Satan, okay, you can attack his property, but you mustn't attack him. And Satan attacks his property, and Job gets right through in the most victorious and wonderful manner. And so Satan comes back and says, all right, all right, but you let me attack him, and you'll really see what he's made of. And God says, all right, you can attack his body, but you're not allowed to kill him. And there is God putting restraints on the power of evil. Is there another passage? Yes. In a passage that I've talked about even tonight, in Genesis 6, do you remember what God says to the people who are sinning? He says to them, My spirit will not strive with men forever. In other words, my spirit isn't going to try and hold back my judgment anymore if you continue in your way. You've got 120 years to repent. That's what God says. Who is it, therefore, that is the he referred to here? Well, it's very clear. This is the Holy Spirit. God himself, and specifically the person of God, the Holy Spirit. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who restrains this power of evil and this river of iniquity. He's dammed it up. He's pushed it underground. And it says, and he will continue to do so until he be taken out of the way. Now let's just read on just a little and then we'll come back to the problem that that poses. All right? Let's read on. I'll read from verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, that's the Holy Spirit, will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. In other words, the moment the Holy Spirit leaves the earth, this man of sin is going to be revealed for who he is. And at that point, it goes on to talk about the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it say? Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow, it says, with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. When's that? That's the end of the tribulation. Seven years after he's revealed, Jesus finally deals with him. Hallelujah. And we're going to see that. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, this man of sin, will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. 
And this is staggering, because when the tribulation hits, Satan starts doing fantastic miracles on the earth. At the moment he can't. He's restricted, he's restrained. And the moment the tribulation comes, they are going to see displays of magic and displays of power from the enemy, the like of which they have never seen before. The Holy Spirit at the moment holds it all back. All right, marvelously victorious. But where's the problem? And there is a problem. The problem is in verse 7. For it says that the Holy Spirit will be taken away. Now the problem is quite simply this, that one of the characteristics of God is omnipresence. In other words, God is everywhere. There's nowhere that God isn't. He's absolutely everywhere. Wherever there is a place, there he is. Praise God. And yet here it says that the Holy Spirit is going to be removed from the earth. Now, how can we understand this? The answer is we can understand it very simply by thinking about the day of Pentecost and the day when Jesus rose from the dead. Do you remember what happened? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. That's funny. He came, but surely he was already here, wasn't he? Yes, he was. But nevertheless, he came as well. And to complicate it even more, let's see the words of Jesus, shall we? Turn to John 16. I'll go back to the King James now. Uh, John 16, and let's see what Jesus says. The Gospel of John, and verse 16. And I'll begin, you ver uh, begin with you in verse 7. Nevertheless, says Jesus, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, you remember we saw that in The Unforgivable Sin, right? Way back years ago, six years ago since we've done that tape. Verse 10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Verse 11, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, can you see, Jesus is actually saying that there's going to be a day when the Holy Spirit comes. What is this about? It is quite easy. Before the day of Pentecost and before Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit was around because he was omnipresent. In the Old Testament, we read that the Holy Spirit came and anointed, say, the kings, or came and anointed the prophets, or came and anointed even the workmen in the temple. So he was here. Uh, those who believed, by the way, were born again by the Spirit of God. So he was here. But what happened? At the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was sent to reside on the earth. In other words, he wasn't just here because he was omnipresent. He was here with a purpose and with a ministry to the earth. 
If you find that complicated, just think about Jesus. Jesus was exactly the same. Do you know, in the Old Testament, there are times when Jesus appears. For example, Jesus was the one who talked to Adam in the Garden of Eden, and they had a good conversation. Jesus was the one who appeared to Abraham. Jesus was the one who appeared to Joshua in that very amusing story. Do you remember it? Where Joshua, just before the Battle of Jericho, um, he's going for a walk to view the walls. And he sees this man, a tremendous man, with a sword drawn. And and, um, Joshua says to him, are you for us or against us? And it's the Lord. And the Lord says, no. And that's his answer. (laughs) Marvellous. I love that passage. I find it amusing every time I read it. The Lord says, no. He says, what do you mean? Of course I'm not for you. I'm the leader of everything. And if I were Jesus, I'd say, it's a better question to ask, are you for me or are you for them? You know? And that's it. Now, that was Jesus appearing. He was there because he was omnipresent, you see, and at times he could appear. But what happened at Bethlehem? At Bethlehem, Jesus came to reside for a time with a purpose and with a ministry. And he was here for 32 and a bit years. That's it. And when he died, he went. Now Jesus, of course, is still here because of omnipresence. But he's not directly here. He doesn't communicate with people. He doesn't appear to many people. Sometimes he appears in the air. You see these photographs of him. You know, lovely. And sometimes people say, oh, the Lord did appear to me. And that's marvellous. But you see, he's not permanently resident here. And when Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit was sent in his place. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to reside on the earth. He who was omnipresent came to reside. Now, at the point where the tribulation begins, he who's been residing for 2,000 years, now his period of residency is terminated. And the Holy Spirit is removed as far as his ministry is concerned. He's still here because he's omnipresent. In other words, if people believe in the tribulation, they still get born again. But the Holy Spirit will not minister in the ministry that he has at the moment. Do you see? At the moment he's holding back things. He's restraining evil. Even tonight he's doing it. Isn't it lovely that we have a simple test that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer, by the way? You know when people blaspheme and take the name of God, very often you'll hear them using the name of God as a blasphemy. And they use the name of the Father as a blasphemy, you know? And sometimes you hear them using the name of Jesus as a blasphemy. And sometimes the name of Christ as a blasphemy. But there's not a person in this room who's ever heard anyone blaspheme using the name of the Holy Spirit. And in the whole of human history, there is not one person who has ever blasphemed using the name of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why. Not one man can do it. Because the Holy Spirit restrains. He holds it back. Not one, I don't even have to ask you. I know it's so. Not one person has ever blasphemed using the name of the Holy Spirit. He's the great restrainer. And I'll tell you this. Today, tonight, this week, this month, the Holy Spirit in all of the world is restraining evil. Sometimes we say, hasn't it been terrible? The wars, the carnage, the suffering, the famine. I'll tell you this. That is with the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what is going to happen when the Holy Spirit's restraining influence is removed? I heard Sir Richard Marsh. You remember Dick Marsh, do you, who was the Labour minister? He was asked whether he believed in the fall of man. He said, well, he said, to be quite honest with you, he said, as I look around the world today, I don't think man's so bad. I don't think he's evil. He says, oh, it's true, you've got a few odd, odd, bad, odd bad lads, he said. 
But the majority of people are upright and loving and helpful. You know, that's what he said. And he said, even in Britain, it's only the minority that commit the crimes. The majority are law-abiding citizens. So he said, so, from the evidence of my eyes, I think people are good. What's his fundamental error? He hasn't seen that it's the Holy Spirit that has held back evil in the individuals on this earth. It's the Holy Spirit that actually gives a semblance of some order. And I'll tell you this, when the Holy Spirit is removed, I think Sir Richard Marsh may soon change his mind. Because when the Holy Spirit is removed, there is going to be an outbreak of evil. The pent-up energy of Babylon is going to be forced onto the surface of this earth. The people who walk down the streets, I'll tell you, their faces aren't going to look as they look today. All of the sinfulness, all of the old sin nature that's within them is going to show on their faces. There will be an outbreak of all that is from Satan. There will be demonism, there will be occultic arts, there will be religion, and may I say this, the religious church is in for the biggest revival it's ever had. There will be more religious people in the tribulation than at any other time. The World Council of Churches hasn't seen anything yet. It's really going to grow big. Oh, it sure will. You wait till the tribulation hits. They'll be there. This World Council of Churches, they'll be absolutely thriving. The Church of the Christian Fellowship won't be there. Hallelujah, by the way. There won't be one representative from us nowhere about. And that's why, we, incidentally, we haven't joined the World Council of Churches because we know that we'll never get the opportunity to resign when the time comes. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's it. They're in for a tremendous revival. There'll be people who are so filled with demons they'll be able to do absolute miracles in front of everyone else. And evil will break out on the face of this earth. It's going to be terrible. The way it breaks out, I'm going to deal with, and it's going to be a surprise to some of you, it's going to come with a smiling human face. The face of goodness, of social do-goodism, you know, with everyone looking so nice. Man, at last, has found the answers to all of man's problems. That's how it's going to begin. But soon it's going to change and become grotesque and rather like a gargoyle. Those people who say that the church is going to go through the tribulation, generally speaking, have no conception of how awful the period called the tribulation really is. If the Holy Spirit's going at the beginning, I'll tell you I'm going to. Hallelujah. <laughs> we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We live now by the Spirit, by the empowering of the Spirit within us. And God has designed us to live only by the Spirit. The moment the Holy Spirit goes, the church of Jesus Christ must go. For he is the one that empowers them. Praise God. And once we are gone, the very salt of the earth removed, the putrefaction is going to start in the most tremendous fashion. It's going to take seven short years for it to reach its fullness. And it is going to be so uh, grotesque that you wouldn't believe it, and you will not believe it, as I painted out to you exactly what is going to happen. I'll tell you, we're in for some very gory details in the next few sessions. But the time is coming when we see God's glory revealed over it all. All right. I'm using the picture of a river. But remember what this Bible study is called. It's called the monster stirs. And so we have to say, where's the monster? I use a river because I'm a geographer. But Revelation uses a different picture, and it is the picture of a monster. So let's turn 
to complete the study for tonight to Revelation and chapter 13. And let's see this monster which is Mystery Babylon, which is this river of iniquity which began flowing at Babel and which has gathered steam ever since. Revelation and chapter 13. Now, before we get to it, let's have a quick review. Let's see how much we remember of last, the last course of Bible studies. These Bible studies, by the way, you've got to know them. They are consecutive. They follow on from one another. And really, you can't understand the Bible in its fullness unless you understand each of the stages. Don't give up. It's worth plowing through them. Do you remember in the, t the tape that I did on the four monsters of Daniel, we saw some monsters. Now, I'm just going to do a little bit of monster counting, and we'll come to some rather interesting conclusions. I'm going to draw a table up here. I don't mean a wooden table. I mean, I'm going to tabulate things. Um, the first column over to the left-hand side, I'm going to call animal. The second column, I'm going to put the number of heads. The third column, I'm going to put the number of horns. And then in the last column, I'm going to tell you what they represent. Now, we saw the four monsters of Daniel. This is in Daniel chapter 7, and this is by way of reminder. Always good to have a refresher course in the middle of new material. Do you remember that Daniel represented four world empires using the picture of monsters? Now, the first was an animal, and it was a lion. This lion had one head, and it had no horns, and it represented the empire of Babylon, more strictly called Neo-Babylon, the one that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over. All right? Now, that was the first. Here was a lion with one head. Then that lion went, and after that, do you remember what we saw? We saw a bear. And the bear, which was raised up on one side, do you remember that? Um, had one head and no horns, and that represents Medo-Persia, or just Persia, as I'll put there. Then we came to the next empire and the next monster. It was a leopard, and it had four heads, and it had no horns, and it represented Greece. Right? It's a bit different from the animals going in the ark two by two. Then the last one was really so grotesque, it's given no description at all. It, it's... It was human, somehow. It keeps talking about the human influence there. Um, and so I'm just going to put M for monster there, because it's not really identified. Uh, it had one head, and it had ten horns on this head. And that was Rome. Now, it's just rather interesting. Let's uh, just chart up, by the way. Four, and one, two, three, is seven. Seven heads, ten horns, and that's what we get. So if we add all of those empires together, that's exactly what we come to. And so, with that bit of background, let's turn to the book of Revelation 13. And here, you see the monster rising. And this monster comes out, and it's the fullness of this system. And let's see the description of it. Chapter 13 of Revelation, and beginning verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads, that's interesting, and it had ten horns. 
Fascinating. Well, that's, that's interesting. I'll point it out in just a moment. And then it said, and upon his horns, ten crowns. We'll talk about this in later Bible studies. And upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. Now, it doesn't stop there. If you then go on to verse 2, look also what it says. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Yes. And his feet were the feet of a bear. Yes. And his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Now, that's the description. What do we see here? I'll tell you what we see. This monster that rises in the tribulation is the fullness of all the other empires that went before. That's what it is. And if you tot up all of these, you've got a lion, a bear, and a leopard, which are represented. You have seven heads, and you've got ten horns, and this one is the fullness of them all. And can you see, these empires were pretty bad, and they were very evil, but they are nothing compared to the fullness that comes out in the tribulation period. You take all the evil of the Babylonians, all the evil of the Persians, all the evil of the Greeks, and all the evil of the Romans, add them all together, and you are beginning to approach what comes out in the tribulation. If ever you uh, want some really gory reading, you just read what the Romans did to the Christians. You just read what they did to the slaves from other parts of the world. They are, it's so disgusting that when the archaeologists came to read it, many of them just had to give up because they couldn't take just how awful and how sinful the Romans were. It's absolutely dreadful. But the Holy Spirit, over a period of time, pushed back the evilness that had come in Rome. In fact, it took the Holy Spirit about 400 years before, finally, that evil was pushed right back. It's all going to come out again with tremendous vigor and force in the period that we call the Tribulation. Now, of course, the seven heads actually mean something, and I'm going to tell you what they mean when we come to this passage again. The ten horns really mean something. The ten crowns really mean something. But the point is this. God has so arranged the arithmetic that we get the idea there is tremendous evil which has been stored up in all these empires which has suddenly poured out on the surface of the earth. And who's the power behind it all? Read on in verse 2. And the dragon, in Revelation 12, that dragon is called the devil or Satan. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And Satan is the one behind the power. Now, can you see, when we're dealing with the tribulation, therefore, we are dealing, in a sense, with an old enemy. It's the Tower of Babel coming out in all of its fullness in the tribulation. This is the philosophy which underlies the tribulation. And when we come to deal with all the battles and when we come to deal with the characters, it is this philosophy that underlies it all. Now, that's where I'm going to end for tonight. But next time, we're going to deal with the chronology of the tribulation. All right? And in a talk entitled... Uh, seals, trumpets, and vials. I'm going to show you how God in his wisdom put a key to the understanding of the book of Revelation, which is so simple that most Christians can't understand it. Because it's too easy, as usual. The book of Revelation is what we might call a doddle. It is an easy book to understand. Its title means that which is clearly revealed. 
And God, through a system of seals and trumpets and vials, has laid out the whole of the chronology of the tribulation. And so, in a few weeks' time, we'll be gathering together and we're going to see this tribulation period coming. Expect nasty things, because it is a nasty period. Let us praise God that we who are the bride of Christ are going to be rescued and during the seven years are going to be clothed, ready for the wonderful day when we will marry Jesus Christ, even in those heavenly places. Hallelujah. Amen.